0: It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness.
1: welcome to The notice Podcast number 307, Companion Cube, to episode 306. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole intro again, but if you skipped over 306 and you're listening to this and you want to know what the hell's going on, uh, just listen to the intro on 306. It explains everything, uh, why there are two podcasts. Um, just in a brief, brief, brief nutshell, episode 306 is with Gabe Newell, and it's all about gaming and Valve, uh, Valve's perspective on games, uh, with Gabe, and then Robin Walker, and uh, David Sawyer, and Will Wheaton, and Chloe Dykstra, and And then 307 is just Chloe and myself talking to Gabe uh, from a month earlier all about uh, Valve as a company. So, uh, two separate podcasts, didn't want to lose any material, and Gabe was kind enough to give us a ton of time, so I'm just putting all the information out there. So here you go. This episode also brought to you by Falcon Northwest Computers, that's falcon-nw.com. They will help you customize the perfect gaming rig, any kind of gaming computing system that you want. You want a tower system or a frag box or uh, a superpower gaming laptop, they will do it any color you want, any configuration you want. Uh, They'll put customized graphics on it, uh, and they have amazing customer service, and there's super nice so if you if you are ready to upgrade or make the leap to uh, a really what we would call a big boy computer then you're going to want to go to falcon-nw.com falcon northwest computers uh, super super great guys great company great machines and now i'll make up a jingle that they did not approve falcon northwest computers better than an actual falcon scrawl If you did not listen to episode 306, then you have missed the fact that we are having a huge Valve Nerdist contest. If you go to Nerdist.com, you can get all the details, but basically, Valve wants to send you to the Dice Summit in Las Vegas. It runs between February 5th and 8th. They're inducting Gaben into the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame. So, Valve is gonna give you two first-class tickets, two airfare tickets to the summit. Um, You're gonna get passes to the summit, you're gonna get a room at the Hard Rock Hotel, and seats front and center for Gabe's keynote. So, if you're a Valve fan or a Nerdist fan, then this contest should make your brain shit itself. Um, we basically just want you to design some sort of Valve Nerdist mashup artwork. Not for any reason, just for fun. Uh, just want to see what you would do with it. How would you mash up our two companies uh, in artwork using their icon, anything from their world and anything from our world? And you're going to send that in JPEG and PNG or GIF uh, file formats to uh, contest at Nerdist.com by 6 p.m. January 25th, and we will uh, announce the results pretty quickly after that. So again, go to Nerdist.com for all the info on that. And now, uh, this podcast, it's Gabe Newell again, the very first time that we talked to him a month before, uh, just talking about Valve as a company. So it's basically one of the smartest people in the world, talking about one of the best companies in the world. Why would you need anything else for the next hour and 15 minutes? And like I said in the intro on 306, I took Chloe up there with me for this one. She is way more intensive a gamer than I am, and most people that I know. I remember one year at GDC, she wanted to track Gabe down and get him to sign her arm so she could get a tattoo of it. Uh, we did not end up doing that. But I do have to throw a special thanks to Chloe because she's the one that showed me the world of Portal so long ago. So uh, thanks, Chloe, and I'm glad you were here for this. I love you and shit, okay? At Skydart on the tweets. And now the Nerdist Podcast, episode number 307 with Gabe Newell. Yay! Kermit Intro! Now
0: entering
2: Nerdist.com.
1: Hello! Hi! Hello. How's it going? I'm Gabe. Hi. I'm Chris. Hi, Hi Chris. My pleasure to meet you. I'm Chloe. Is that Chloe? I'm nice going to stick you in that chair right there. That's alright. Oh. Sorry,
0: I'm like holding onto the companion cube. <laughs>
1: <sighs> Thank you for coming to your office. <laughs> <laughs> it was easy. <laughs> I got lost. <laughs> it's easy to get lost. It seems like you guys are building. Adding, you know, Karen saying you guys it's, it's constantly adding on and expanding. And
2: yeah, oddly enough, it's pretty much the same rate we've always grown at. So since the beginning.
0: What floor are you at Number nine.
1: Yeah. Number nine. When do you take over the whole block? <laughs> <laughs> when do you get Bellevue? Yeah. <laughs> are we recording? Yeah, I just just started. Great. We're all set. Yep. Gabe, thank you for being here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I feel very official right
2: now. Is that awkward? Uh, just so long as we don't have to go bowling. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you still would not be the worst bowler there, trust me.
1: <laughs> do you, were you referencing the fact that you know that I bowl, or were you just throwing out bowling as a thing? Uh, I was watching your
2: bowling competitions with the Doctor Who cast. So, yes. Are, I grew up, are I, you a fan I, of
0: Doctor Who?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I have a theory about Oswin.
1: Yes, yes, yes,
2: please. So how do they bring Oswin back? So she keeps saying to him, Remember me, remember me? Yes. And he's taking his watch off, so the nanophages are working on him. Okay. So that's what she's doing. She's actually inserting herself into the nanophages so she can be brought oh, back later.
0: Whoa. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Did you oh. spoil something for no, us? No, I don't know.
1: I'm just guessing. No, that he's a fan. He's just guessing. No, no I know. Moffett... But
0: watch, if that's what it's gonna it's going to be. And then we're like, ah, oh,
1: damn. That Moffat's brain, like, you know, the, the couple times I hung out with him, I just feel like, oh, you probably get the same thing, though. People just want to crack your skull open and just start poking around inside and see what's, what's in store. Only at very strange restaurants. <laughs> 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 that, that... I, you know, cause, Have they said anything? He hasn't said anything okay. yet. So that's my theory. That's a way better theory than just, oh, they're just going to catch her earlier in her timeline. Like, that is a way better theory.
0: That's brilliant.
1: I was like,
2: why do they have these silly watches, right? Yep. And then I also assume that uh, uh, the pawns leave because she gets pregnant again, which is another side effect to the nanophages, right? Oh, but, yeah, of course. So uh, River will have a sister. And that's how
1: That's my theory Uh, Someone has a really Interesting theory online About And I really I hope it's true But I don't know But that Rory Is the master And he's laid out All these points Where he's like Remember when River was regen Did was wasting all. Did you talk
0: about of- this on the podcast? No, before? not
1: yet. When River was blowing through all the regenerations, and he had a headache, and it was like the the, the thumping in his head, and then mm-hmm. and then like the TARDIS itself wouldn't be the only thing that could create a half time Lord, mm-hmm. and so so like he has this, so this guy has pieced together all these theories that. I should probably cut that out. Yeah, that turns that's out, why I'm to, like, you shouldn't be talking <laughs> about this. To, but that's just a theory that a guy had. I didn't mm-hmm. have that theory.
0: Yeah, but now you, all, everybody who listens to it is like, oh, damn it, Chris, if he's right.
1: Then I think what I should do is bleep out that entire section just, just to infuriate yeah. people. <laughs> yep. So then we'll just come out and be like, oh, what an amazing theory that... I like, think that's a fantastic theory <laughs> that people will never <laughs> <very> hear about. <laughs> very likely. Unless it happens. Well, we'll no. know in like two weeks if that's the case or not. Mm-hmm. Were you always a fan of the show or was it... Uh, I started when the new series started. Yeah.
2: And uh, argue with people about which of the best of the the new ones. I still liked Eccleston quite a bit. Oh, then, yeah. nice. But uh, Matt Smith has certainly been growing on me. Yeah. It seems like everybody grows in the role.
0: So are you seeing Tenet's number three for you?
2: No. Uh, I. It would depend upon my mood and which episode. So, I like Tenet a lot. I, I really liked his exit. I like the fact that he played it like... He was pretty bummed out that he was regenerating. I not so.
0: think he was playing. I think that, that he—that's how he actually felt.
1: You know,
0: so right. was it ten years?
1: Not ten years. How, how no, long? No, he was—he was on for three or four years. Ten years. Uh, it was definitely not ten years. Not ten years. Uh, But he—I think that schedule is so demanding on them, and they literally can do pretty much nothing else. Mm-hmm. And so, I think after a while, it just is like—and—and ah, and I think they understand that in order to keep the show fresh, they have to recycle. Have there been any rumors about ever bringing back either Eccleston
2: or Tennant in a cuz they've done it before right They're, the most they ever had at one time was for for uh Doctor Who simultaneously
1: well and they did stuff for like they did like comic relief stuff where mm-hmm. they would you know like mash up doctors yeah. but but I don't think I would be surprised if Eccleston did it I I don't really I've never met him and I don't know much about him but just everything that I've been able to piece together he kind of did it and when it was sort of over it and then like I don't I don't really you know he's the one guy that came on that i think was like but i'm a film actor you know <laughs> like I don't, i'm bigger than this yeah <laughs> i'll do your adorable children's television show for a season but then i'm moving on yep um have you ever gone back and watched any of the original series
2: yeah uh i they just never seem to grab me right i understand the the legacy and the, the mythos and everything but uh I have trouble just getting over the production values. <laughs>
1: and, um. I mean, it's essentially a lot of it's like almost kind of black box theater, just mm-hmm. that '70s sort of. I think that's why it always freaked me out as a kid. Like it just looks, so, it just looks so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now each
0: episode looks like a movie. I mean, the effects on, the, on it's pretty amazing.
1: Well, yeah, and now Moffat's show running Sherlock and Doctor yeah. Who, and I love Sherlock. Such a great... I liked the, the the first
2: season. I thought the parts of the second season were pretty weak. Although, uh, it wasn't the woman. It was uh, a scandal in Bohemia. Was that the episode with uh, the woman who's basically the female Sherlock Holmes? That oh, right, was like my right, right. Favorite, favorite episode that they've done uh, so far.
1: I liked one and three of the first season, and two I was okay with. And then I had heard, I don't know if this is true, that two was actually... Like it was going so well that they're like, well, let's do an extra one, and then and ended up they ended up sandwiching it in between the first one and then the uh, the Moriarty one, the second Moriarty. One.
2: I'm worried there's no payoff that it's just some gag like they had a mattress there and the vehicle you see pulling away, he was inside of it, and that you know um, that Watson didn't get close to him was an indication that he uh, that that just seems like. A, uh, Pretty lame. But then the original Sherlock Holmes was pretty lame when he killed him <laughs>
1: off and then brought him back. It's like, okay. But I feel like Muppet's pretty good at paying stuff off. Like he'll want to he'll want to pay it off pretty well. I think. I would imagine.
2: I hope so, because that's uh, that's also
1: one of my favorite shows right now. Are you? you so you, it's not. It's nice to hear that you're a fan of stuff pretty much in the same way that I mean. I would imagine at this point, the, people pretty much fan on you a lot. I would imagine. <laughs> Have you been on the internet? Because there's a lot of it. Uh, Yeah,
2: certainly. uh, I think that that's uh, something that drives a lot of people here. I mean, that's how we got into Dota was a bunch of people here were fans of Dota. And for me, it's been a lot of fun coming into the games industry because like the first um, was over in London uh, at a trade show and this guy came up and started talking to me. And, you know, at the time you answer a lot of questions like, you know, is that a computer? And, (laughs) and then, but he was asking a lot of questions that made it clear that he knew, uh, a lot about games and game development and, uh, game design. And then I look at his name badge and it's Warren Spector. And I was a huge fan of, of Ultima underworld, Mm -hmm. which is like one of the, uh, you know, it was around the same time as Doom was. So, having met uh, Carmack, and then getting to meet Warren Spector is like,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden the tables turn, yeah. Yeah. and then you leap off the stage.
2: Well, yeah, and I i have met uh, Miyamoto a couple of times, oh, and boy. he's a—he's great. Um, it's interesting to be around him when there are uh, kids playing, because he just can, he'll just totally lose interest in any of the adults in the room, <laughs> and like he'll be like over on the other side of the room playing with uh, a Wii, and uh, you can just see his attention drifting. You know, it's pretty admirable because he's he very um, there were. When I was over in Japan, there were American kids who were playing in the room, and he just didn't get to see American kids playing his games very often, and he really, really was struggling to divide his attention between what he was supposed to be paying attention to, according to his secretary, and what he was really interested in, which was watching these kids. So I was trying to show him uh, Portal at the time, and so... (laughs) It was like, yeah, oh, that's kind of interesting, but
1: but these kids are here. <laughs> Yes, what are they doing? <laughs> are they shooting portals into the wall and walking through them? Because that would be really cool. Yeah. Let me just make sure this is recording. Uh, I've done so many of these, and I still have that horrible fear that I'm going to get to the end of one. I'm going to be like, what happened <laughs> to the file that should be
2: here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think uh, the, I mean, the thing that you guys do with the Nerdist is pretty similar to what what we do. It's just letting yourself be enthusiastic fans of these kinds of entertainment properties in these communities. Uh, it just seems to be a great way to be part of the community and also be contributing to the community. You know, going through and looking, I don't think that you guys think about how you create your shows and podcasts is any different than how we approach it. It's like, we know what we love to see when other people do it, and we try to re- re- recreate it. Um, right.
1: That is a tremendous honor to hear that from you because I think you, I think one of the things that makes Valve a legendary is not just not just because of the games but also just the general philosophy that you guys have. I mean, I think people really understand that it is it is like by fans for fans, hundred percent of the time. And you know, uh, so I guess in with that in mind, how do you kind of keep how do you keep it fresh? Like, how do you how does it not become a job for you? at some points so when you kind of get caught up in the, you know, in any kind of managerial stuff or the chore of the things that come with it? How do you keep it fun? Um, for all of
2: us, I mean, uh, first of all, the people uh, that I work with that everybody works with here, they're a huge amount of fun, right? I mean, we get to be fans, you know, it's like, oh, it's Red right, Fraggle, you know. Uh, <laughs> um you know, and people do incredible stuff. I mean, you get to walk down the hall and see what what people have created. So uh, that's how it feels, right? You get to, you know, see the code that somebody's written or the tools or the, the movie or, you know, game design or something like that. And uh, that's fun. And we also, well, I have to back up a little bit. Um, I think there are these structural changes that are occurring in general across many industries. It's most obvious uh, in, in the entertainment space, which is there's this blurring of lines between creators and consumers, yes. right? There's not there's this old notion of, you know, this auteur super far away and even putting the experience onto film is a violation of the vision that the audience is supposed to be approaching. Stuff like that, which, you know, okay, if that's your mental model for the process you're using, that's fine. But nowadays, it's like, you know, half the time, you know, you're the audience, and there's a big difference between a good audience and a bad audience. And half the time, you're the person up on stage doing stuff, and I mean that quite literally. Like if you look at TF two right now, uh, the amount of content that's created, in the the boring way of looking at it, of you know how many models do they make, how many hats do they make? They make ten <laughs> times they make ten times as much uh, as we do. So it's you know this idea that somehow we're the creators, and then you know, we ship a product and people buy it It just doesn't actually fit. And the reason for that is there used to be hugely asymmetric costs to distribution. So, you know, a consumer, in order to even go over to his friend's house and get him to experience something, that was super hard. You're dragging over a DVD, you know, and that's like uh, the only way it used to be is you had to uh, get everybody co-located for a rare instance of an experience, right? Uh and nowadays, it's cheaper for you know a kid in Kansas City to sell his content to users all over the world than it was 10 years ago for the most efficient company in the world to do the, the yeah. same thing. Uh, so that's you know the, that's the simple way. You know we've everybody has talked about it and pointed that out, but I do think it means that that relationship uh, is a lot blurrier. And that impacts, you know, your, your just sort of your design philosophy and how you think about stuff. You're part of the audience, right? If it's not working for you, it's not going to be working for other people. And the, the way the company is designed is we don't have a lot of external um, drivers of our decisions. Like we didn't, we don't do quarterly reports, right? Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't. We do annual reports because we're required to um, by law. But it doesn't occur to us that we're ever going to make a decision that's based on or profit or growth objectives for any given quarter. Uh, that's a deliberate choice, right? It's uh, It allows us to do stuff like, wow, we're really enjoying this game, Dota, and let's just call this guy up and find out you know, how he's going to be making... Oh, he's not? He's not working with anybody? Well, does anybody think it's a horrible idea for us to work with him and build it? Because he sure seems smart. That's sort of like how... If I weren't... Yeah, well, that's how I would like to believe that these things can happen, right? Is that Moffat can call somebody up and say, you know what, I'm totally excited by what you did here. When you know, It's like call J.J. Abrams and say, we should figure out how to work together. Or, or, you know, Brad Bird calls up some writer and says, we have to figure out some way to work, uh, work together. We don't have to worry about production schedules or budgets. We just need to worry about what would be the super cool thing to go do. You know, dinosaurs in space. Yes.
1: On <laughs> <What> a <laughs> spaceship.
2: And so when you ask what it is that keeps us going, I think as long as they are exciting and interesting things... Uh, you know that get us excited, then we're gonna prob- probably not have a whole lot of problem figuring out what to do next. It does create sort of a peculiar pathway to some of our things. So, you know, we go do Ricochet, and everybody's like, <laughs> Where's the sequel? And we're like, <laughs> We can't figure out how to make it better. It's kind of perfect the way it is. So, uh, how could we possibly ever do Ricochet 2? Uh, but uh, You know, we tend to pick the things where it's most obvious that we can do something interesting. There's no pressure on us internally to, you know. Like, if you look at uh, sports titles, there's enormous pressure to bang things out on a super regular basis. And even if, you know, if that team is working on it and they say, we have no idea, you know, why there's anything interesting, you know. We haven't come up with any good ideas since, you know, um, uh, what's that silly game where you roll a big weight on the ice? Oh, curling? Curling, yeah. We haven't figured out how curling 2012 is going to be different than (laughs) curling (laughs) 2011. We're going to put Tiger Woods in it. (laughs) You know, but they still, given the uh, sort of the models they work under, they have to just keep banging those things out. Whereas, you know, we're in a position where until we really understand why we're doing something that's going to be valuable and interesting, uh, we'll just, we have plenty of other things to to work on. There's sort of like no called third strikes when um, you can really sort of... I don't want to say we're following our muse because that sounds stupid and pretentious. It's it's more like we get to work on the things that we think people are going to react to and say that was the best way for you to to spend uh, your time.
1: Well, I think that's how you know when you're working in the right field is when you find like a when you find the guy who's doing Dota and you don't go, "Hey, I want to compete with that." You go, "I need to show this to the world." Like that's mm-hmm. that's how you know I think you're working in the right field where you sort of lose where you're not competitive in that way, where it's just like, this needs to be bigger and this needs to be shown to the world and I want to, like that's a kind of a a whole different role.
0: Well, what I think is really cool, what you were mentioning before, is that you could just talk to anybody and and work with them, but um, you also uh, have been lending yourself to other projects, right? Mm -hmm. Like Clang, for instance. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Clang?
2: got to know the, the people who are involved in the project, and they said, we're trying to do this... Uh, I, I'm really interested in... Uh, so there are a bunch of different ways that communities can drive what what is going to happen. And one of the last pieces actually is to figure, uh, figure out how the community itself can drive the the financing of, of these projects. I actually... Uh, think that that's going to happen regardless. I think there's a, there's actually securities law and banking law that has to change in the U.S. and around the world um, so that uh, it's sort of like the earlier you, you start supporting a project, the greater your rewards are going to be. Right now, securities law makes it very difficult for somebody to say, Would you like to be an investor, right? There are a whole bunch of restrictions on that. But essentially, at the end of the day, all the money for every movie, every game, every book, all of that comes from the people who are eventually consuming it. And you've got these financial intermediaries who are not really contributing much to the eventual outcome, right? Um, You know, a bank that makes a, a production loan for you know, for the next James Bond movie is probably not going to create, you know, a better uh, James Bond movie. And so <laughs> uh, uh, getting, you know, we spend all our time trying to, you know, we don't, we don't need, you know, we have, we don't have financial constraints on, on what we do. Uh, we have time constraints. That's the, we, we, our time constraints are ten times as great as our financial constraints. So but us, we spend all our time trying to figure out what our, what our customers like and what they don't like and what we should do right. And so our major way of doing it is releasing something, seeing what the response is. We actually force ourselves to predict in advance, and you, you measure that. So um, to us that's you know we wouldn't have built to it TF2 the way it is. Uh, starting from where we thought it was going to end up, it took some pretty dramatic turns based on how customers were were responding to stuff, and you know that's what drove the workshop, and that's why you're starting to see third parties using Workshop, and you know we think we're headed to this kind of strange world where, you know, you have these kinds of sinks and creators of content that are that are sort of frameworks and the content is going to become a lot more interchangeable and the value that people have either through player creation is going to be, um, a, a lot higher. But part of the thing that keeps a lot of people from moving in that direction is the fact that where they're getting their money, whether it's a bank, whether it's a publisher or wherever, uh, are pretty far away from what it is that people actually want. And the rate of change is so fast right. that, uh, they're, They're slowing down that transition a lot. And the more that, you know, the fans themselves can start driving these, you know, these production decisions, like, what is it that, you know, uh, Neil Stevens, super smart guy, is incredibly successful in the, you know, science fiction space, uh, and he really wants to try to figure out, you know, he loves sword fighting a huge amount. It's such a, it's such <laughs> I've seen a the movie. videos. Yeah, I've seen, yeah. Um, He's been doing it a long time. He likes hanging out with other people and talking about it. Um, he's pretty good at it. Uh, Are
0: you, do you sword fight?
2: Uh, no, I, I have swords. I you have
0: a bunch of knives and swords and stuff. I have a
2: bunch of knives and swords. That's pretty cool. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think there needs to be a way so that people can say to him, Neil, you know... That's a great idea you should go do this. Neil that's a really stupid idea. you should go you know write more books instead and having that occur sooner in the in the process by people sort of betting with their own dollars I think is a super good idea so philosophically I was I'm a big fan of of what Kickstarter and other efforts like it are are trying to do and I actually think it would be great if that it could extend not from these sort of rewards but to actual... Uh, participation in the eventual success so that the sooner somebody starts saying there really should be, um, another animal, Uh, what was it? Manimal movie. Uh, (laughs) But there really
1: should. I mean, we were so robbed of a good manimal.
2: Yes. But, uh, the sooner that people can vote and say, no, we really are. I think those uh, people become the seed around which a community develops and it becomes pretty self-fulfilling. Um, so I see that as being something that's going to occur over the next few years. So Neil knew I was kind of like a fan of the idea, and he said, well, why don't you help us out? Why don't you uh, do this? And then um, Palmer, lucky with the Oculus Rift, uh, is also doing work. And I'm trying to sort of be a little bit of a fan boy myself on that stuff. It's like, okay, you know, the model should be, if you think something's a really good idea and you want to see that person take a, take a swing at it, you need to contribute in some way to help make that happen. In that case, you know, I lent my my name and spoke a couple words in a camera, which is fairly uh, small thing to do, but you know, hopefully uh, it's a model that all the fans can use as well. Like if we really want this to happen, how can we start contributing at the beginning rather than after the thing is done? I think content will get I think entertainment will get better. I think creators will do better. I think the percentage of control and the amount of money that goes to things like distribution and marketing will fall, just like it's been doing in hard goods and other places for the last 30, 40 years. And I think that's a fine thing. I think at the end of the year, uh, or at the end of this process, it's better for for uh, everybody who's, you know, fans fans of these. It's going to be great for nerds.
0: <laughs> so what do you think that the big companies are going to have to do to stay relevant?
2: And- I don't think I don't think they will. I think the rate of change is too fast for most of the companies to, to be able to adapt.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I read your employee, I read the employee manual, like the new hire manual, and it, it was fascinating to me, just the sort of flat line of everything, because you are a big company, but you operate like a startup. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that because you own everything, it allows you to be nimble. And I just, I hadn't really, I always come up against this problem like with, when it comes to like traditional media and television. It's like, well, the bureaucracy just fucking ruins everything because it moves at a glacial pace because so many people have to sign off. And I I, I I really think that your manual should be distributed. I mean, I don't know how most companies yeah. would operate with that sort of flatline because people are too much, especially in entertainment, into the, well, I need my title so I can tell other people what to do. Like, there really has to be a unique philosophy uh, for, for, for that system to work. But when it works, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it makes all the sense in the world to me.
0: I think it draws really cool people in with that kind of philosophy, too. You end up with a really great company.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, for me, it means that I get to work with Karen and Jay and Jan and Jeremy and a bunch of people who were super successful and really good at what they were doing and it creates an environment that, you know, hopefully they find stimulating and exciting and uh, allows them to be productive for the long run. Uh, that's that's why I actually think, uh, you know, if you look at the, the, the design of a lot of modern corporations, it's derived from pretty poorly tested and thought through methods of organizing Production and allocating capital. You know, it's like a lot of the stuff is copied from bad ideas about how to build armies. Right? right. If you look at the history of this, it's like, well, okay, you know, if you really want a bunch of people to go over hill and get shot, you know, okay, I understand why you why you approach it this way, but I think it's really. Um, It doesn't serve people. The first thing it does is it causes everybody to think of themselves as being separate from their customers rather than just being part of a community, which in this day and age is uh, not helpful as a starting point. So I really doubt that uh, a lot of the large corporations will be able to make uh, transitions into the new world. I think that you'll see ad hoc groups of people forming and producing stuff and then reforming around other projects that will be way more effective and productive than you know traditional large uh, media companies and I actually th- think you'll start to see that extending into into really surprising spaces like in hard goods like there'll be a group of people who self-organize around producing a race car or and then it'll go into production uh, and people will go, isn't that something that traditionally required, you know, $100 billion in capital? Right. And But the rate of change in technology will more than offset the efficiencies of, of, of scale and uh, the sort of deeply pipelined structures of the, of the automation, you know, the factory automation stuff. So, uh, and another way of thinking of it is, it used to be that you had to have a big uh, company around a big piece of capital equipment in order to use the capital equipment efficiently sure. and nowadays it's like well actually you can set up a web server and, and people will be designing their own widgets and uh, making great utilization of that piece of capital equipment and the value of the goods that are coming out of it will be way higher so whether it's a 3D prototyper or, or you know uh Million dollar five axis CNC or a ten million dollar automa- automated weaver. I think the interface is so that designers don't need to be in the same organizational structure as that piece of capital equipment uh, um, that. Uh, it's going to be way better for those people to just say, I'm going to, alloc- I'm going to reserve time on those sorts of productions. So I think that even way outside of the... Like if I said to you, like really big companies are going to be terrible at putting up interesting, entertaining websites on the internet, you'd say, I totally understand that. But I actually think that even in things like, you know, what tr- the things that they should have been really good at, you know, organizing and allocating... Huge uh, resources and scheduling production to use those resources efficiently. That somebody else is going to come in and put something up, and all of a sudden people are going to go, "Wow, that's about 40 percent more efficient than the track record of you know the the GMs and uh, Boeing's of the world and their customer and they're building products that those guys could never build, right? You'll get your own car and yeah.
1: And things like that well because it, it, it's there's so much there's so much hierarchy and there's so much structure that the companies are like so top-heavy that when the financial crisis started happening you started seeing basically marketing departments take over entertainment companies it was like well we'll get this down to a science and we'll you know this demographic and flowcharts and all, you know uh, 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 spreadsheets and and basically the creative part was very much secondary and now I think that's why people go, well, there's so many remakes, and there's some They go, yeah, because marketing departments look at things, they go, people recognize this character, so we're just going to do this over again, And because we know we can sell it, you know, Mm -hmm. rather than trying to take chances on new and creative. I don't even think big entertainment really understands how to do that anymore. Right. And uh,
2: uh, there's also uh, a lot of times, you know, the the bug gets mistaken for the feature, right? Which is, you actually don't want to make the same thing for everybody. Uh, You don't want to create the same offering, whether it's goods or services, to every possible customer. You actually, you know, it's the broadcast model. It's like, how could the internet work? It doesn't look like a broadcast model. People might actually get different experiences, and how could that possibly be good? And you're like, well, actually, the fact that people can... You know, it used to... I remember... Like, in the early multimedia days, the whole people from old media were actively attempting to extinguish the user's ability to navigate this through stuff mm-hmm. right it's like well that's not how it's supposed to work. We don't want them to actually say, "I want to look at this podcast and this article and this 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 interview because you know it was like they're missing the whole point because it didn't look like how they would program Wednesday night um, you know or, or you know Seinfeld or and the shows before and shows after. Uh, so that's that's uh, I think another one of their problems is that they're still trying to say how does this new thing map to the old model rather rather than realizing that the old model was um, succeeded in spite of its problems, not uh, because of like each person should actually end up at the end of the day with their own unique entertainment experience. That's a that's what people would prefer. Uh, and how do you author experiences where there's that amount of Unique customizability, you know, and and do it uh, efficiently.
0: Well, you see that, and then you create a game like Portal that everyone loves. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: but I don't think you can set out. I don't think you can go. I'm going to create a game that everyone loves. Well, you that's, have to. Yeah. No,
0: that's what's really interesting yeah. about it. Well,
2: you but I. So okay. So I'm willing to say that we were good at that thing, and but we're not convinced that that's what we need to be good at in the future so if you look at the amount of personal customization that can go into tf2 that's the the beginning of being able to offer people you know personalized uh entertainment experiences you know um i'm just i'm just pretty sure we're going to keep going more and more in that direction so that each person gets an optimal experience for, for uh for them, not the same experience
1: that everybody gets. Well, then I have a question about that. Is there is there any is there any concern about because sometimes I, I wonder and I say this as being a part of the consumer group, are we too spoiled as consumers because we get stuff whenever we want, mostly for free, exactly the way we want it. Is that spoiling us? Because like like particularly in comedy in the old days, there were super comedians. There was Steve Martin. There was Richard Pryor. There was Seinfeld. There you know. Uh, and, and everyone kind of came together to celebrate these things. And then as we got more and more splintered and more and more niche, now people are less likely to come together over things. Is well, that I good or bad? I didn't get to watch Doctor
2: Who when I was a kid. So, yeah, I'd say it's bad. I didn't, you know, there was, you know, you could watch all the television you wanted as long as it was on one of three channels. Uh, so um, I think the... Uh, I'm not I'm not super worried about the uh fragmentation because I actually think I see the opposite which is um people are finding more and more people uh to be engaged with. So you know um you know when I watch kids play I was listening to these kids uh playing uh one of our games and they started shouting at their television in Russian and I'm like what the fuck? Why you know and they're like well, we're playing with people in Russia, and they don't understand English, and so we, you know, they were learning a new language <laughs> so because they, it was they the could heckle
1: easy... the Russian kids. Were... <laughs> no,
2: they were actually trying to get them to go do something. Oh, okay, okay, uh, funny. Uh, and you know, it's an interesting environment because you have shared goals, and you know, you tend to repeat the, the same things over and over. So it's actually an interesting environment in which for really domain specific ways you're going to pick up another language sure. it's like put teleporter here and they were like well the russian for that is you know because somebody had yelled it at them and that, that was sort of my point it's like i don't think these kids ever would have you know pre this fragmentation they never yeah. would have encountered people like themselves who happen to be i don't know living in siberia. i don't know where they were siberia i'll just say siberia because it's fun <laughs> um uh you know uh you know, My Little Pony. You know, I'm a fan of the My Little Pony shows. I never would have been able to connect with other uh, grown-ups who are interested in My Little Pony before everything started to fragment. So I really think people are finding... It was, it was an interesting lesson when I started working with DirecTV back in my previous job at Microsoft, where it was like, well, how do you think about programming? And they say, the fact that we can reach... You know, 250 million people means that markets that were previously never going to be served, like people who speak some uh, Chinese language, now becomes an incredibly profitable business for us. So people who are never, ever, ever going to get television programming uh, with the old broadcast model suddenly could get television because when you aggregated them together, they were a huge community. So a bunch of people who weren't getting served were. And that's always sort of made me a little bit thoughtful because... Uh, It was like, oh, that's right. And Rather than flattening everybody and saying you're all exactly the same, we're now saying it's much easier to find people. uh, uh, You can broadcast to other people all over the world for, you know, basically for free. And that that means you're going to find a bunch of people who like doing, you know, Sherlock cosplay (laughs) in a steampunk (laughs) thing, you know.
0: (laughs) Hang on, though. Can we go back just for a second? So you're a brony?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, what, well, I don't know. What, it, what I watch My Little Pony. I'm a fan of the show. So when people say, are you a brony, usually they have some weird, creepy f- aspect. They of imagine the you're dressing up yeah, and running well, around.
0: Yeah. What, what is it about My Little Pony that you love so much? I've never seen the show. You
2: I'm, should watch the show. It's a really well-made show. The previous, uh, I've uh, gone and watched some of the old uh, My Little Ponies. Terrible, 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 <sighs> terrible television. But uh, Lauren Faust and the people that she pulled together, it's just great television. The first six or seven episodes of the first season are a little bit weak because they kind of had the clamps on the creators because, you know, this is a kid's show. You can't call somebody a nerd, right? And it, that's a real issue that the, the creative team had with the people at, at Hasbro. And there was, a, there was an educational consultant, which essentially meant idea Nazi, who (laughs) would would forbid them from doing a bunch of stuff. And then after the first several episodes, um, they started to You know, let the reins get a little looser, and it turns out to be a
1: great show. It's
2: just a fun. It's just a good show to watch.
0: I enjoyed your use of the word reins in that
1: sentence. That is is kind of funny, though, particularly when you're like with children's television, where like you can't say this, you can't say this, you can't, and then. But what happens is a lot of times these writers are. So, you know, they a lot of them have comedy backgrounds, so they start figuring out little more subversive ways to get their messages across that go that just skate right past the uh, the people that are censoring them. Yeah. So
2: I think it's just. Uh Good television.
1: Uh, so I will check it out. I, sp-
2: I promise you, I will check that out. I think it's
0: time for a ponython. We're
2: gonna ponython. We're gonna do a ponython. Yeah. Uh, well, I also have to say I hated the Sopranos. So I'm just calibrating. <laughs> calibrating. <laughs> I didn't like any of the characters in the Sopranos. I didn't think that the storylines were going anywhere. What about My
1: more. Little Tony, because where you have a group <laughs> yeah. of tiny, adorable Sopranos uh, beating <laughs> the shit out of <laughs> each other? <laughs> That's right. And then and then and then, pr- and then prancing around on. Red. I'm gonna whack right. you with my hoof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would watch that. Oh. Listen, in our in today's mashup culture, yep. there is no way that My Little Sopranos would not like, be. Shoot, that's probably already so, a fucking T-shirt. I was gonna say, somewhere. T-Fury
0: probably already yeah, did that. You're to, you're to yeah, you're gonna
1: T-Fury or Threadless. Like some, someone's done that. Yeah, My some Little point.
0: Sopranos. If not, somebody get on that.
1: Well, I always wanted to do L Word babies, but no one would let me do L-word it. Me. Yeah, just tiny adorable like lesbian babies, babies, babies with giant but, heads living out loud. Oh, there is a movie called Gaby
2: which is coming out which is um a gay man is uh, helping father uh, a baby. So it's not a
0: gay baby.
2: No, it's a but they call it a gay baby, which is the first time I'd ever heard that phrase except when I was a kid <laughs> and I was being tortured. But uh, Gabe, Gabey.
1: Oh, of yep. course.
2: So oh, maybe right. that's why I, I alerted when I saw the saw this. <laughs> <essentially>, the <laughs> but it's essentially the L word babies. How
0: so. do you feel about being called Gaben, out of curiosity?
2: Well, the weird thing uh, is that that's always the name I've had for, you know, as was Gaben at Microsoft.com, and, you know, you, it was just the naming convention when they use when you're giving you an email address. Right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, you start to, this is early on when, like my brother was one of the f- first people to use email. He's like uh, near. Uh, he was at Stanford near Park, and uh, uh, so all these sort of early things where oh we have two people named Bob, big surprise. So then you'd start to refer to people by their email address because that was a unique handle. So Bob Matthews was Bob M, and. Um, and the longer your name ended up being, that was an indication almost of seniority, right? So, if you had your name and then you had like seven letters of your last name, <laughs> it just meant, you know, that all of the other letters had been already consumed by somebody else. So you were just used to. So when people would refer to me, they'd say Gabe End, right? Because I was Gabe Ben at Microsoft.com. Yeah. And then when Mike Carrington and I started Valve, we just used the same naming conventions. So.
0: But but you so you were referred to as Gabe like Gabe yeah. Before all the commentary thing happened.
2: I'm not totally clear where people are going with the whole uh, how do you stop a gay ban? I don't know if (laughs) there's something like...
0: (laughs) How do you you feel about kind of being like an internet meme? I don't feel like it's a meme thing because people adore you and I think that's sort of where it comes from.
2: Well, uh, I like... You know, I like it when people take something that i do or we do as a company and, and run with it and if one of those things they want to run with is my email address <laughs> that's a good sign
1: right oh, uh,
0: so yeah. i'm still laughing about the how
1: you're <laughs> yeah, yeah Red, Red, Reddit's pretty fond of you oh uh, yeah
0: reddit loves you
1: yeah
2: well we all love reddit here so although they were they were trying to get me to uh, declare my love for either 4chan or reddit and I was like no way am I getting into that and In oh, of that
0: really that
2: would just be you know nuclear wasteland if uh, I'll just let them fight it out
0: well, that's you know. a yeah you should never answer that question whoever,
2: <laughs> whoever can take down the this. Lithuanian central bank first <laughs> thing. They, they get my... No, don't say that because they'll do it. Yes.
0: Wait, ha, have you uh, spent some time on 4chan?
2: Uh, yeah, Reddit? sure. Yeah.
0: Uh, 4chan and Reddit?
2: Yeah, everybody. You have to understand everybody here is a massive consumer of internet stuff. So and, you
0: so you would consider yourself an internet denizen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. How do you balance between... Because the, the problem that I've been finding lately is in the last couple of years just with sort of the growth of the our little company is that I I've been realizing recently like I, I've not really devoted as much time to consumer as I should as much as like oh I've got to make stuff and, and, mm-hmm. and there are things that I'm finding like oh I missed the last four episodes of that thing or I didn't get to play that game or it so I was reading in your manual you said listen if you're the manual says if you are working uh if you're working overtime then you're not balancing your time correctly mm-hmm. um but how do you manage that how do you how do you manage the balance between consumer and creator uh, i I just it doesn't really
2: i don't spend a lot of time anguishing over it and I'm, I'm sort of willing to trust my impulses you know it's been doing this a while and uh, uh, you know you, you start to recognize your own tendencies and how you manage around them. So I'm pretty good about balancing that sort of automatically at this point. Um, you know, it's something that, that I'm sure you guys uh, have run into as well. Like, uh, one of the... You know, we tend to think of people who are working as being on this uh, continuum, continuum of experience. Like, when people first start out, they're like, but why shouldn't I, you know, uh, do drug deals on corporate email. And you're like, ah, cause not a good idea. And you know, they're just a bunch of things that you learn. You learn how to be an individual contributor. You learn how to make the people around you more valuable. One of the things you end up having to learn, and it's one of the issues we work with, we tend to work with people on is not being burned out. Mm-hmm. Like we say to people, no, 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 you have to do this for the long haul. And everybody is known people who, who've gotten burned out and they're, you know, uh, Powerlessness is actually, you know, a huge part of it, part of it. Feeling that you are bearing the costs of somebody else's bad decisions is, is a uh, is one of the drivers of burnout. And um, and we try to work with people and say, look, you know, you nobody's going to manage this better than you. If you're feeling burned out, you need to think about what it is that's causing that to occur. Is it an internal issue, an external issue? You need to, you know, that's just one of the things. In the same way, you've learned all of these other skills, you need to learn how to. Uh, manage your own uh, frustration level. And, uh, you know, I've known people I'm sure you guys have. I've known people who basically blow up for like a decade. They're just like, I. they work insanely hard and then they just grind to a halt and then they just are are stuck. And then, you know, they eventually restart. But, you know, the longest I've seen is somebody who just couldn't couldn't subject themselves to the sort of the intensity of the, the the pressure. It's like they're their brain was saying, no, 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 we can't trust ourselves yet to go back into this. And the same thing with, you know, how do you balance between, you know, being a consumer and a producer? It's like, you know, it's just you eventually get to something that you recognize as being uh, a, a good balance. Um, and you also can see the, the, the results, right? I mean, Eric and Zabi and Adrian, when they contacted uh, Ice Frog, it was like, are we being self-indulgent here or not? And, you know they were right that they. I mean they thought about it, and certainly there are times when uh, uh, we have done uh, projects or you know invested our individual time where we've had to look back and say maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. But that's an example where the people were like, "Is this self-indulgent? No, this, this is actually probably a really good idea." And uh, turned out, you know, you know they, they came and poked at me and said, "What do you get, What do you think?" And I said, "No, I think it's a, a fine thing to go do." That is before I met Icefrog, and afterwards I was like, "Nah, no, you guys, you guys are right. There's something, there's something here that is totally worth pursuing." So it's just you know one of those things. You just learn it over time, and experience helps a lot. Having people around you who can
1: give you good perspective on it is, is super useful. It's an incredible amount of faith, though, to in in the process. I mean, because there is there seems to be a thing that happens with your company because I. It seems like, okay. the philosophy of where there's a flat line and there's not really an org chart in the traditional sense um, that when you're a small company, of course, everyone like we're all on the same team and everyone can float around and do whatever they want. And then, well, then we scale and then it gets bigger. And then, you know, and then I think maybe you're kind of surprised that it ends up working. But it seems like that there is this kind of if you work with the right people, this kind of like they form sentient masses together. Right. So, um, you know, there are a bunch of consequences around that, uh,
2: that you need to, to do. I mean, the most obvious being who you add to the collective, uh, is insanely important. Uh, one person can have a hugely, le- have a lot of negative externalities to use, um, economics terminology and, uh, you have to deal with it. Uh, but I actually think that more and more you're going to find that um, highly structured, non-self-organizing groups can't deal with the rate of change, right? That, that organizations are enemies of what you're going to do next year. They're, uh, they're a chronicle of what you were successful at previously. And if things change very slowly, that pro- may not hurt you, but the rate of change of things is so high. Um, for example, if you had a company and you created, you know, here's the vice president in charge of uh, social, and, you know, he was hiring a director of social, and then all of a sudden you had to hire your vice president of mobile, and then all of a sudden it turns out that their, you know, Facebook's IPO didn't go as well as everybody thought, and Zynga's, you know, stock market and this whole investment, well, you still have this organization, right? You still have everybody who's chasing the, the, Uh, the last battles and they look at their, you know, business cards. So I actually think that um, it's really a function of the rate of change and that we're, everything that we see is that the rate of change is increasing, not, not decreasing. It's always nice to say, well, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen all of the change that we're going to have to, and if we can just get on top of this, then, uh, then we'll be successful. But um, uh, in the same way, uh, I think Microsoft was really startled by Google, and Google was startled by the emergence of Facebook. It's like, come on, guys. I mean, <laughs> you, Microsoft, you were sitting there watching IBM completely fail to adapt uh, quickly enough to the rate of change in the technology industry. You, you shouldn't be surprised that if you do a bunch of things that make you less responsive to customers or technologies or uh, how... Um, how businesses are evolving, you shouldn't be surprised that you get left further and further behind. There definitely is a sense of an analog... And and simply picking the next target to aim at... Right. ...doesn't solve the problem because you'll just fall further and further behind that.
1: So is it even possible for... I mean, you know, Microsoft is still making money, but is it even possible for a company like Microsoft or is it just such a monolith that it's... I mean, how do they... In a situation like that, do you just topple the whole structure and start over? Like, what do you do when it's that... Uh, I... Uh,
2: you know, when you talk about them as a corporation, most of the things that people are referring to as a corporation are not particularly valuable going forward, right? It's like the things like, well, we have, uh, you know, uh, a senior vice president of worldwide OEM sales channels. It's like, okay that's great and you've got this whole org chart and you've got all these pricing structures and you've got all these you know marketing materials and how exactly is that going to help you uh in microtransaction based free-to-play application software right it's like uh um uh, the thing that we call the corporation isn't it's actually a penalty for all of the people who are involved and for all of the capital that's involved and and so on it's uh it's not additive, and I think that that's going to become increasingly obvious in, in, the, in the future, right? I mean, corporations are not really—they're um, also not that old, and a lot of the practices that are associated with them are not that old. So it's not like, you know, these things have withstood you know a thousand <laughs> years of history. Uh, and I think that uh, the things that we call corporations are not—you know—I think the internet is and then whatever comes after the the next thing after the internet are uh, are inherently better i think that the internet will do a better job of organizing most people's output and enabling their consumption than typical distribution channels and and and
1: corporations i think it might be quantum telepathic information rings where we can just sit in a room And then all of a sudden just share, like, a little... Well, yeah, I mean, right now we have
2: what we think is this super awesome forward-looking project. So, you know, it's something Carmack's talked about, Abrash has talked about. We're looking at, you know, have we reached the point where augmented reality technology is such that it goes out of, you know, uh, investment... Banking, destroying, you know, capital black holes, and into something that actually might, you know, be a pretty cool product. So we're we're digging into that, and already you can see the next thing after that. You go and look at this this uh, woman. She's uh, runs a department at Cornell, and they're working on sort of the the retina brain. Uh, system and she's actually made a huge amount of progress at looking at the coding. So, in other words, just skip the whole front, you know, from the retina forward and just drive stuff directly into your brain. And everybody goes, ah, it's science fiction. Well, holy shit, we haven't even made any progress of significance on AR and VR, and already you're looking at this thing that looks an awful lot like, you know, well, we could just you know, drive stuff directly in your brain. And that's not 20 years from now. She's doing, she's publishing these papers right now. Uh, and, and there's a lot of research going on where you're like... Wow, why should we waste a bunch of? You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> wow, we could work on touch interfaces, or we could just beam it directly into your, you know, frontal lobe.
0: So it's how, lower power. So how you're feeling? How are you feeling about like Microsoft's new technology? Was it the smart glass? Is that what it? Mm?
1: Okay, well, smart glass, and then and then Google's uh, the but whole
0: smart t- uh, smart touch. Oh my God, I'm totally spacing on the name of it. The new glass uh, controllers. Uh huh. Microsoft came out with these new controllers. Surface. Um, are they, I don't the think
2: new I... controllers? Are you talking about the new uh, the, Windows the RT touch, tablets?
0: Touch pad, the iPad, ta- The yeah. Tablets. So Yeah,
2: uh, so the, the Surface ones, you know, the, the details that are leaking out make it sound like it's not going to be super competitive even with the iPad. The main point that I was making, though, was that it seems like uh, the rate of change is increasing, so the things which have been challenging to existing approaches, like corporations... Mm-hmm. That those challenges are not decreasing. It's not like they can just, well, if we just figure out this <laughs> social networking thing, then we can be done. It's like uh, the, the the ways of getting people to collaborate effectively that are most responsive, most flexible in the face of change and, and um, mitigate the risk of the rate of change. Um, are going to be the things that are more successful, right? So that that was the point I was making. I wasn't, like, referring specifically to, you know, oh, we should never work on AR at all. We should just go directly to, you know, direct neural stimulation. It was more the point that even when we... Think that we're working on super something super advanced. We're already, looking, something, yeah. we're already looking. We're already yeah. looking at the thing that could be disruptive. You know, she <laughs> she could like make a bunch of progress in six months, and then all of a sudden everybody looks at well, it's the, these things that have these products that haven't even shipped, and you say so. We have to figure out not only not how to ship not only how to ship products, but also how to not ship products. Yeah, right. But it's like well, we should just skip this whole generation. It's the rate of obsolescence
1: is is fucking crazy. Well, but the right. thing
0: that's weird to me is a lot of the companies nowadays are actually sort sure of playing copycat with each other you know we've got the motion control and then we've got the smart glass and the tablets and they're all just sort of copying each other
2: yeah i don't i don't think that that uh my sense as a consumer is that you know it's going to be harder and harder to just simply be trailing edge low-cost producer of something because the forward edge is going to be so changing so quickly it's like everybody who's trying to copy what what apple's been doing in the tablet space is just getting crushed yeah right uh there's a reason that they're the you know the, they're the most valuable company in the world is that they're on the front edge and then everybody else who's like saying but we did exactly what you did two years ago and everybody says yeah and then that's why we're not buying your thing and it used to be that you could you know do what somebody was doing five years ago you know in terms of the the fundamentals of what you're implementing and you were you know you, you just had to take you know a 10 percent hit on your profit margins and, and there you were and uh so the you know it's like you're either there or you're getting left further and
1: further behind do you think that the companies should adi- I, I love the i love the uh the the t approach to your employees where it's like you it's this t-shaped where they where they should be really good at a bunch of different things at a bunch of different disciplines but amazing at one at the same time mm-hmm. do you feel like that's a good model for companies or is that is that just better for individuals
2: uh i think the the uh i think the big problem is you know i think there's going to be this huge inverse I think all the smartest people and the hardest working people and the people who are most connected to their customers are going to increasingly not understand why their current employer is helping them uh, do what they do better. And so the people who are going to be left behind inside the corporations are, you know, it's going to slowly, be they're going to sort of, you know, vampire off of what the corporations have traditionally done, and but there's going to be this horrible, ugly, you know, Toxic uh, wasteland inside of the corporation, and it'll fall over, right? I mean, if you look at General Motors, I think they've destroyed 350 billion dollars of value since 1971. So, in 1971, if you'd simply stopped GM in its tracks and just said, "Don't ever sell another car; send everybody home," you'd be 350 billion dollars ahead of where you are now. Letting them be in the car business uh, over that period, right? Uh, seems like the world is trying to tell them to stop, (laughs) right? Um, And I think you're going to see that sort of over and over again. I mean, it was pretty obvious even back then that GM was never going to get its, you know, and that anybody who didn't, everybody who saw it and saw that they weren't changing course, they left. They went and did something else. And any sane person who was in school who was talented and cared about doing something cool, they said, no, I'm not moving to Detroit. Uh, and, you know, so they torched a giant pile of of, of, of money in the process. And I just think you'll, that's an instance of what we'll see uh, over and over again.
1: I don't mean to make you talk a about corporate
2: stuff, but I am truly fascinated by just seeing... Well, just, I mean, you know, if, if, if some 14-year-old came to you and said, give me advice of what I should do, right? You're not going to tell them that they should... Uh, you're going to be pointing to a whole bunch of people who are visible through the internet as examples of interesting choices yeah. about their lives, but you're not going to be saying, "Oh, there's this corporate path and there's job security." No, no, I would I would tell them. I would say, and th- middle
1: management is something that you should really think oh about. My God. I've been I've been so. Fr- I'm sorry, I really want to talk about games too, but I just this middle management thing is such a fucking stumbling block, and I have only just in the last like six months to year really seen how many good things get crushed by middle management people who are afraid of getting fired. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you can actually just go around middle management to the people who make decisions and go, hey, here's this thing. They'll go, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. Let's just do that. Like, so, middle management is like a, a goddamn minefield.
2: So when somebody's here, right, nobody here says my job is to act as a gatekeeper on somebody else's work, right? So almost everybody here builds something, that customers directly experience, right? Nobody says my job is to go to the people who are actually creating something that's valuable and uh, give them permission to do it or not give them permission to do it. Uh, and that's where this sort of comes from, right? You need to understand uh, a lot of times having this perspective, like, a lot of the people here have run their own companies, and it's that perspective of understanding the side effects of some of their choices that makes them real, really valuable, mm-hmm. right? They don't, they don't say, "Oh, we're going to change this," and not realize that there are implications. But everybody here is insanely good at doing something uh, that a customer is going to look at and go, "Holy cow, that's awesome!" Yeah. You know, whether it's programming or animation or music or whatever, uh, and that knowing that the thing that you're doing is actually creating value is super useful. And you look at... uh, Well, I'm going to pick on GM because it's fun. I would say (laughs) 98% of the people who work there are not involved in any way in anything that any customer actually ever directly experiences. And you're like, how could that possibly be? And you're well, it works when you... Well, you can talk about... Anyhow, it's not going to work in the future. Uh, And I think it's interesting because... You know, when we, when I think about our future games, I think about the people who are listening to this, you know, on their PCs or wherever. I think those are my future partners, right? That there's this kind of expanding Schrodinger wave function, you know, and uh, I'm really talking to the people who are going to be thinking of how to make Dota three better right. or TF three better. Um, so I'm actually talking about games. When I think about the structure, I think about who am I going to be working with in the future to build the awesome thing that I'm going to enjoy uh, being part of creating and consuming and that they are as well.
0: I just want to point out for a second that uh, Gabe actually does know how to count to three.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they give you a lot of shit for that. I, I, yeah, because... People... One, two... <laughs> squirrel!
0: Oh, damn it! One almost there, there's one more.
1: Gabe, you we know, got from one to squirrel.
0: Okay, from squirrel, where do you go? Uh,
1: I, I asked uh, uh, Will Wheaton, who is yep. uh, uh, one of my, <laughs> my best friends. I told him yesterday that I was going to... I was like, well, it's too bad you're not in Seattle, because we're going to talk to Gabe Newell tomorrow. And he was like, no fucking way! Like, he flipped his lid. And so I, I said, listen, if you could ask Gabe anything, uh, what questions would you have and so he said, "Here's my question for here's my question for Gabe."n Steam has fundamentally changed the games industry by allowing games from indie studios to be distributed right next to the biggest AAA titles. Did you intend uh, for this to happen when you developed the platform, and how do you feel about it? So we suspected it would be a consequence
2: of what we were doing, but we were really letting customers decide. You know, our if you asked me what I thought was happened, I thought that it would broaden the uh, the choices that customers would have and increase the reach that creators would have. But we really also didn't want to steer it, right? We thought this would be kind of awesome if it happened, but we're, you know, we try to keep from putting our thumb on the scale because, uh, you know, there's a risk of biasing the answer if we say, oh, and well, this is really going to, you know, you know, if customers really want to play X or Y or Z, we don't want to be the people who are interfering it because that Marginalizes the value of Steam in the first place, mm-hmm. which really is uh, about um, increasing the signal-to-noise ratio between content creators and consumers. And if indie guys need to know that, they should be scaling up their efforts. So you could look at an indie guy, and he could be saying, the "Question: Should I spend, you know, five hundred thousand dollars on a title, or five million dollars on a title?" And you know, we have our opinions about what we think is right for our games, but the uh, it's a really important question: is how much risk should be taken on on each of these projects? And Steam helps everybody make better better choices about that. So, uh, we feel at this point that you know the best you know we need to ship all the all the time because we're. We can't. We don't think we're smart enough to make decisions that are too far into the future because we keep finding out we keep tripping over the choices that our customers are making. In that same way, we think uh, we shouldn't be telling the customers or, you know, their communications with developers that that indie games should be more successful. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. We really thought it would. Everything about it seemed to indicate it. If our understanding was correct, but we also didn't want to be uh, affecting the outcome because then. Um, we're decreasing the amount of information or we're biasing the amount of information that's flown through the system. Does that make sense?
1: It, it makes sense. And it's also interesting that in a way that you're, that, I mean, it's kind of a fearless approach to take that you're allowing a platform for people to develop stuff that could potentially be better than the stuff that you're developing. And you
0: promote it with the humble indie bundles, which is uh-huh. awesome.
1: Uh, Will's second. Merimble lessons? Dun,
0: dun, dun. Yes.
1: Uh, and then, of course, Will says... As a per- I didn't I wasn't, I wasn't, didn't want to ask you this, but Will Will wrote this, and I promised I would. Okay. As a personal favor to me, would you please make Half-Life 3? I'm sorry. God. I didn't mean to bring it up. I apologize. Oh I'm sure you get that shit all the time. That's probably your did-you-fuck-Jenny-McCarthy question we, that I always get from but people. But you
0: have to... We had to ask the question. Otherwise, okay. I mean, we just had to. Did you
1: fuck Jenny-McCarthy? <laughs> oh, damn it! It's only fair that you asked me that question back. <laughs> well, uh, did
0: you fuck Jenny-McCarthy? Uh, Chloe, hey, it's fine.
1: Whatever. <laughs> um uh no on the Jenny McCarthy question and now your turn okay uh no he's not going to answer you shouldn't answer no I didn't fuck Jenny (laughs) 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 McCarthy Karen Karen was actually the person that uh engineered all this and Karen Prell I just want to thank you so much thank you Karen because Karen we worked with Karen I may have to cut this out but Karen uh is red, Fraggle, and we shot this video together. And she said, "Oh, I, cool. the Ben Folds, the ben Folds video, yeah. yeah." And she said, "Oh, I work at Valve." And I was like, <gasps> "And Chloe, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a
0: fan." Chloe is a this huge. Is a little, a little here's the thing. Here's
1: it. I am a huge Ben Folds fan. So we've completed it all completed, worked it, together. we completed, we've completed some type of matrix. So the, for me, um, I was a huge gamer from the time that you could play video games, and. In the early two thousands, I gave up video games pretty much the same way I had to quit drinking because I was like, "It is just consuming too much of my life." And then a couple of, a couple of years ago, Portal was the game that pulled me back in. And and and, it, it and now was... you're an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was okay to drink again and to do a lot of drugs. But but I think the thing for me that Portal touched was, uh, and I hope you take this as a compliment. It just it, it had the same. Vibe to me as sitting on an Apple 2E computer playing Zork. Uh It's just that same kind of like the game's fucking with you a little bit, Uh and and it it made me so I don't know. But so Portal brought me back in, and as I've said before, Portal Two I think is one of the best, not just written games, but one of the best written things in all media that I've ever experienced.
2: Yeah, it was. um, I know what you're. I totally know what what you're talking about. um, It was. So, uh, uh, when we started Valve, um, uh, we were kind of bummed. Mike and I were both gamers, and we played a lot of Doom. And um, when I played Doom, it scared the hell out of me. Like I I hadn't been scared as an adult for real in a.
1: You just went like right into Scott's office. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Okay. (laughs) So I'm gonna finish this anecdote. Uh, when I played Doom, I didn't have the sense that the people who played Doom a lot had, which was of complete mastery. Like, when they played, they'd walk into a room, there'd be a thousand, you know, monsters, they'd slaughter them all, and their only challenge was to play multiplayer. My experience was, holy cow, the blinking light is bad. I don't want to go to the (laughs) blinking light. And at two o'clock in the morning, I realized uh, I had created this entire fiction in my head, and I was scared... I was genuinely scared, like, you know, hair on the back of my neck was standing up, and I hadn't, you know, had that emotional, wasn't exactly looking for it, you go to horror movies and you spend most of your time laughing, and here I was, I was scared, there were choices that I knew I ought to make, that I was unwilling to make because of those consequences, like, holy cow, games are awesome, games are going to win, right, because I just don't get this uh, any other way, the sense of choice and engagement, and, and, and so on and when we looked at the response to Doom which was to completely ignore that experiential aspect of it you know the, of the sense of a world and a story and being involved with these being engaged with these characters in, a, in a, some sort of meaningful way which you know is, is a weird thing to say um, and say everybody was creating a shooting gallery and that just seemed to miss that whole thing and so both you know with the Half-Life series and, and then on the, in the portal that's you know that's totally what we've been responding to it was like there's this opportunity uh, in in games to do that kind of thing uh, and it's exciting when we can pull it off it's exciting when other people uh, in the field you know do something interesting uh, to, to, to make that uh, happen you know and, and now I'm all excited and I want to Go play some <laughs> oh, go play. Wait,
0: I, I have two questions really okay. quick before you go. Uh, have you played played back? Uh, I can't talk. Black have Mesa. Pl- Black Mesa. Yeah. No, I
1: haven't played it yet. I know I have to, but I haven't played it yet.
0: I know I haven't either. I will. I will Left for
1: Dead is like one of the biggest significant things in Chloe's life. I, right?
0: My entire bedroom is zombie. It's it's all right? zombies. I have Left for Dead posters all over. So my I walls. hope I
1: hope you don't mind that we fan all over you and then a little
0: bit. Last question. Um, can you tell us about the ARG stuff or not the ARG? Um, the uh, augmented reality. Can you tell us about the augmented reality stuff?
1: Um,
2: yeah, so VR is just, uh, the simple way of thinking of it is uh, being in the environment. AR is mixing together the real uh, environments and the virtual environments. There are a bunch of gnarly technical problems around how people do visual processing and things like Sci-Kids, uh you know, where you're eye basically turns off for 20 uh, milliseconds as the eyeball moves and judder and there are a bunch of things about it that you know when people sort of went on the whole horrible VR ride VR helmets wearable computer thing you know and you know all of those companies blew up uh, and all of those experiences were just really horrible like you know for me VR uh uh VR game is right up there with interactive movie as signs of things (laughs) to be avoided at all costs. But we've actually, oddly enough, as every one of the companies has finally ran out of its last little bits of of venture capital, uh, a bunch of the hard problems have actually uh, been solved. And we're kind of right on the border of being able to do interesting augmented reality, which, you know, be in an environment. Uh, have the software recognize what the environment is in an interesting way. In other words, look at this and say, this is a table, this is a chair, you're people, I know who you are. Um, And to be able to indistinguishably map on top of that uh, a a virtual environment, right? So um, you could you know, if you had a good enough renderer to basically uh, photorealistically map in things that make the the virtual things in the uh, environment indistinguishable from the actual things in the environment. Um, So once you have that capability, the question becomes, what are the interesting things to do with it, right? Uh, So if I put hats on you, that's probably stupid. (laughs) Um,
0: You can put a hat on me any day. Uh,
2: But hopefully we're going to find interesting... Uh, things to do with those capabilities right now we're mainly focusing on the plumbing part which is kind of boring you know we can say we're going to enable stuff but we can't show you the stuff that we that we have enabled it's easy enough to take one of our existing games and play them in those kinds of environments but that sort of misses the whole point of of having these uh these new capabilities so the question really becomes why uh What is the valuable, awesome thing you can do when you can mix a game environment with the real environment, given the fact that the real environment is pretty much going to ignore what's happening in the virtual environment, right? So you have this weird situation where um, you have a monster in the room and the deal is, as long as the monster doesn't move any of the furniture, it's going to be fine. Now, the nice thing is you can share that, right? So if we're all sitting here in a staff meeting and some of us have AR, then we can be playing the monster game while the boring guy is giving us his, <laughs> his slideshow. Uh, but it's trying to find the thing where you say, okay, now uh, I, I get why this the, the, why this is interesting. If you describe to me um, uh, motion input before and after... Wii sports Like before Wii Sports, I'd go, that is a total waste of time. I can't, I'm sitting here, I'm trying to think of ways that's, that's interesting. I use Wii Sports for 10 minutes. I go, oh, I totally get it. There are a whole class of things you can't do unless you have the, this capability. So we're at that stage where we're trying to figure out, given these capabilities, you know, are enabled by writing a bunch of software and having the right hardware. What are the interesting things we do? It could do? T- could turn out to be a total waste of time. Uh, it's traditionally been a total waste of time. Um, but we're going to take another swing at that. But do you, we don't,
1: want, do you, don't, you want to leak anything before we go?
2: I don't have anything to leak. If if I were, had something leakable, Come I would on, be... Come on, take
0: a leak. Come
1: on. Okay, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, thank you very much for chatting with us. It was fun. It was and cool. I really hope... Um, I mean, listen, we're... We...
2: And if I'm right about... Uh, uh, Doctor Who.
1: Then we have to go bowling. Oh shit! We'll <gasps> totally go bowling. Oh my god! If we come back we love here to, yeah. a lot. I, as a matter of fact, I would listen. I don't, I'm sure a lot of people tell you this, or other people are always tugging at your uh, at your pants about this. But I, if you ever want to collaborate on anything with us, just anything fun, we, I think I think a Nerdist Valve thing would be super super fun. Great. I'll I'll think about that. I was you know going through the the,
2: the Nerdist. Uh, earlier, and so I actually think that that's a totally worthwhile thing to do because that's really, you know, the model for going forward. It's it's the the nature of what we think the entertainment beast is, and a lot of other things is how can you create structures. So, it's not just collaborating with the nerdist; it's collaborating with all of the people who go there too. And what would be a fun thing to do? So, I'll think about it.
1: Well, thanks, man. Awesome. Sure.
2: Number. Yes,
0: it is. It's a magic
2: number. I haven't heard of it before. before. No. <laughs> it's a magic number. It's
1: a Mr. Trinity. oh If I were Catholic, it's just Catholic. Any <laughs> <laughs> cabernet could do what That's magic number. Enjoy a Burrito.
2: Now leaving
1: nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey you It's Jason Bateman. Have you listened to Smartless? Smartless is the podcast that I host with my friends who are more like brothers. The super talented and funny Will Arnett and Sean Hayes is JJJJ. Well, why are you yeah. why are you whispering? Well there's there's a
2: at the gym or you're in the car. Just listen to the podcast.
1: Sean, tell them where they can find it. Follow SmartList on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to SmartList ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye.